Doctor on the Middle East, our Monitor's weekly podcast analysing the big events unfolding across the region. My name is Ambrun Zaman and I'm our Monitor's Senior Correspondent reporting from the field. This week we'll be looking at the dismal state of US-Turkish relations. Can they be fixed or are we well and truly headed for divorce? With us today is Alan Makovsky, one of the finest Turkey analysts globally. He's held numerous positions in government on the Hill and has worked at various think tanks, including the Washington Institute for Near East Policy and the Center for American Progress. I normally chat with Alan in Turkish, but we obviously won't be doing that today. So welcome to our show, Alan. It's so wonderful that you could spare the time to be with us today. I'm so happy to be with you. So kind of you to have invited me, Amber, and it's always great to talk to you. So Alan Bay, um, have you ever seen US-Turkish relations this bad in all these years that you've been following Turkey? Is this the worst that they've ever been? I think they were, first of all, let me, uh, say that I appreciate your fire, very nice characterization of me. I, some of your listeners may start to question your judgment, but oh, um, anyway, it's so nice of you. And it's, uh, I, I have such immense respect for, for you that it's um, uh, deeply appreciated that you said such nice things. Um, I, look, I, as you said, I go back a long way. I was not in government. But I uh, certainly well remember uh, the 70s. And I was in Turkey for part of the time of the arms embargo from 75 to 78. Strictly speaking, I think that was the worst. But the consequences right now are much greater than they were in the 1970s. In the 1970s, well, because in the 1970s, Turkey really had no option but to remain with the Western alliance. I think we all knew that at some point this problem was going to have to be worked out. Um, Now Turkey is a much more autonomous player. It advertises itself as more autonomous and it really is more autonomous. And um, I think the US does have to be concerned that Turkey, goes more towards Russia, buys more Russian arms, um, plays with the Chinese. Uh, There are Turkey, there are all kinds of possibilities. Now, would this be in Turkey's interest? No, I think not at all. But uh, Erdogan has shown that his calculus is often quite different uh, from that of myself or uh, many other Turkey analysts who think Turkey acts against its interests. Buying the S-400s was not in Turkey's interest, but they did it. So that's why I think this, if not the worst period, it's certainly the most dangerous period in U.S.-Turkish relations. Well, so why does it matter, actually? Why does it matter for the United States that the relationship is so bad and that, as you described, Turkey could potentially you know, move much more firmly into the Russian-Chinese orbit. Why is that bad for the United States? And, and, and why is that bad for Turkey if it is? Well, I think it's, I think there are two 
overarching reasons why it's very important. And one is, uh, and, and which is always talked about, is the geopolitical, to be, to use common language, where Turkey is located. Um, Richard Holbrook said many years ago, when he was Assistant Secretary for European Affairs, Turkey is at the center of every issue of importance to the United States on the Eurasian continent. And that is really still true. And it's very important for the US uh, to have access to Turkey um, when it can. Secondly- well, Can we just, I interrupted you, but you know, we see the US leaving Afghanistan sort of less interested in the Middle East you know, the geopolitical side of things, does it matter as much? Does Turkey's geography matter as much still? Could you just explain that a bit more? Yeah, look, that's a great point you're making. And if the Middle East um, and the Mediterranean are no longer of interest to the United States, then you're right, Turkey loses a lot of its value. Um, uh, and, you know, um, we would have to add some other regions in there too, such as Central Asia, Russia, Balkans. These are all areas that Turkey borders. And, and the Black Sea. Yeah, I said Russia, but yes, of course, it's the whole Black Sea, not just Russia that's across the lake, but uh, Ukraine and, of course, uh, Bulgaria, Romania, and NATO members. Um, so even if we were leaving the Middle East, which I personally um, don't think is very likely. Uh, there's so many other areas, just, I, I mean, I'm sorry to keep quoting uh, the late Holbrook, but- um, you know, <laughs> I'm sure he appreciates it. Uh, yeah, if he, <laughs> wherever he is, if he knows about it, I'm sure he does. But uh, he, I, I always remembered that when he said it. He said, Turkey is at the center of every issue of importance in the United States on the Eurasian continent. And that you look around the clock and um, it's not just the Middle East and the Mediterranean, but it's uh, all, all the other areas I just enumerated. Could we manage without it? I, I, yes, I think we're, the United States is the most powerful country in the world. I think we'd find workarounds. There are certainly um, a lot of countries that are willing to work with us uh, around Turkey. Um, and I think in some cases you can see that we're diversifying uh, because of uncertainty about Turkey. Um, but, uh, uh, I, I think it will be very hard to replace Turkey, um, given its location. I did want to mention the second reason, because if that's okay with you. Of course, of course. I was just being rude, interrupting you. No, you were being rude. No, no. But you were forewarned. No, I no, said it's a that. great question, because you actually, you made the point, U.S. foreign policy is very dynamic. And, you know, some regions, and particularly the Middle East, seemingly are not, uh, don't take quite the priority uh, that they once did. Um, I, another reason that's important, that why Turkey is important as an ally is that it is the only Muslim majority uh, state in the NATO alliance. And uh, well, strictly speaking, that may not be true anymore. I'm sorry. And there's Albania, right? Albania is now also. But um, let's 
Turkey is the only major Muslim majority country. And I think in certain circumstances, the more that the US is involved uh, in NATO operations in the Muslim world, that helps to bring some legitimacy. I think Turkey was a very important ally for us uh, in Afghanistan. Um, and now that we're no longer in Afghanistan, it's clear that next to Qatar, Turkey is the country that um, we most want to lean on uh, in terms of communication with the Taliban and other aspects uh, of working with Afghanistan, including the airport. So um, it's a little more sensitive to say that, that the, the uh, demography of Turkey is almost as important as the geography, but I think it's been an important factor for the United States over the years. Well, why is it important for Turkey? Why is it important for uh, why is the, to preserve this relationship? You made a good case yeah. for why it matters. Look, uh, yeah, I, I see. Okay, so, I, I follow you. Um, look, I think it's important for Turkey because um, for several reasons. Uh, first of all, the Turkish military. Um, let's talk about first the, the narrowest of reasons, security. The Turkish military is built on US equipment. Um, it would be, I'm not a military guy, but I read military guys. And um, I, I and I know a lot of them. And, and you I know a lot of Turkish military guys. You're one I, of the I do people. indeed. I've had the pleasure <laughs> to meet many. You've had fabulous access to them for decades. Well, I, I don't know about that. It's sometimes more and sometimes less. I've certainly tried to because they've been an important factor over the years, although you know, not the most transparent institution. Um, and, uh, um, you know, I, I think anyone, any layman can tell you that if you wanted to switch to from uh, US military equipment to Russian, it's an excruciating process. It's an entirely different doctrine even. And it would be very difficult to do. And I think, look, even Egypt, which switched from Soviet to, to a US-based military, it's taken decades uh, for them to um, fully At come least around. they're moving in the right direction. Yes. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's been worth it. <laughs> right, that's a great point. And, uh, and so I think Turkey should be smart and not even try to change directions. Um, so I think that's one thing. Look, I think it's important. Um, I could say for economic reasons, but Turkey's fairly adept at uh, maintaining good economic ties with uh, states with which it doesn't agree. So even though U.S.-Turkey trade has been growing over the last decade, it's probably something they could do no matter uh, what their precise relationship with us. But look, because of the relationship, the relationship with the US can't be separated from the relationship with NATO. Through NATO, Turkey gets access to the best equipment, the best know-how, uh, the most powerful countries, and it derives a lot of world prestige. And that helps Turkey also 
in non-NATO countries. I've seen it, I mean, from my travels to the Middle East, the fact that, and, and by the way, I have visited every Arab country at least once um, and had meetings with people and discussed Turkey in many places. Um, the fact that they're a NATO member helps them in the Middle East. It gives them a special status. So, you know, I, I would say for reasons of uh, military security, um, as well as diplomacy, uh, relations with the US is very important with, for Turkey. Beyond that, for most Turks, I think that being part of the democratic world is very important. Uh, that may not be true of all Turks, but I think we got an illustration in 2019. Um, uh, of just what democracy and elections mean to Turks when, um, and you might correct me on the numbers here, but you know, after Imamoglu uh, won the first round, um, what was supposed to be the only round of right. the Istanbul mayoral elections by 1400 votes, 1300, 1400 votes, um, and then was forced to do a do-over tens of thousands of people who had voted for the AKP candidate, if not hundreds of thousands, changed their vote and voted for Imamoglu because they thought that the election commission, the higher election commission had made a mockery of elections and had treated Imamoglu unfairly. So I think Turks care very deeply about being part of the democratic world. Um, the democracy has never been perfect in Turkey. Uh, and it's unfortunately gone quite the other direction, uh, particularly over the past decade under President Erdogan. Let me just say this, yes. So I don't wanna short shrift the economic dimension because most of Turkey's FDI, its foreign direct investment still comes from Europe. And you see how it's, it has declined in, 19, in 2019 and 2020 when relations with the US have been so bad, I'm not saying there haven't been other factors, um, but I think it's clear that potential investors want in Turkey that they feel is reliably part of, is stable, is stable and part uh, reliably of the West. Here we have this guy, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, you know, he's, he, he's all about power, right? And so, we can safely say that democracy doesn't seem to matter all that much to him, but surely the military aspect, the first aspect that you spoke about at great length should matter to him. You know, Indeed. the prestige aspect, the projection of power, of, you know, adding weight to his, you know, image aura in, in, the, in the Middle East and elsewhere. This Absolutely. Being part of NATO, etc. So why, why would you flush that down the toilet? Why would you, you know, not get rid of, or why did you even in the first place get these useless things that are apparently sitting in Murted Airport that cost Turkish taxpayers billions of dollars? Why on earth did that happen? And why is it still going on? Okay, so I think you're asking generally what is it about Erdogan 
that would make him do something about that, and also specifically why the S why the S four hundred per. Well, that's based on the assumption that it really was his decision, and if you disagree, let let's hear why. Well, I'm sorry. I think it was his decision. I mean, uh, you gave me too much credit for my access to the military, but from <laughs> what, whatever I was able to discern, I. Uh, the military did not think this was a good idea to purchase the S-400. Um, so I, I think it was very much his decision. I mean, otherwise, whose decision do you think it was? I think it was his decision. And, you know, there are various explanations, you know, paranoia. He thought the Americans did the coup, so he wanted to coup-proof himself with Russian kit. Um, right. I, I don't know. The, yeah. Various so, explanations. Yeah. Look, that is none of the explanations make perfect sense. Um, but yes, I think that's the one most of us have come around to that he thinks that somehow if he used Patriots, that um, the ignition key would really be in Washington. And we, and she thinks that uh, we did the last coup. Uh, or we're behind it, that um, when the next one comes around, we turn off the ignition key of those patriots and let, let the <laughs> Whatever, bomb I mean, step back. Yeah, he's not most... a dumb guy. He's a super smart guy, right. actually. And I, look, I think there's also, to be a little um, uh, less personal about it, I mean, maybe he backed himself into a corner. Remember, he wanted to buy a, a Chinese air yeah, defense right. system. And right. we, we talked him back from it. Um, and they were not, they, the Turks, were not happy with uh, our failure to offer co-production of the Patriots. And so he kept, so his next threat was on the S-400. And maybe he figured if he didn't pull the trigger and finally do one of these deals that we would never believe uh, that there's any competition out there. So, so, you know, that would be, a, his it, hand? yes. So I, I'm, look, I'm trying to come up with a, an explanation other than the coup proofing one. Right. And yes, right. I think that's possible. We don't know, but look, there is a, there is a factor. And this is why I credit somewhat this second theory I just suggested. Um, he is a very emotional guy. I don't, I generally like to analyze world politics based on interests as much as possible and less on personality because I don't know these people personally. Well, I have had the honor of meeting President Erdogan a few times, but it's been a while. Um, uh, so, yeah. but I think, I think objectively on record, and we saw this very recently, he's a very emotional person. Yes. And he reacts in a very personal way. Look what happened at the UN. Biden didn't meet with him. Well, Biden didn't meet, to my knowledge, with anybody other than one person uh, during the New York uh, during the New York trip. Um, and Erdogan was insulted, apparently insulted, because President Biden met with. Uh, uh, did meet with President Barham Saleh of Iraq. Right. Right. Barham Saleh is somebody 
everybody in the foreign affairs world in Washington knows well. He was the PUK representative here for over a decade. Um, you know, uh, everyone lo loved him. Erdogan should not have been insulted by this, but he was. And it prompted him to make a statement, which it seems to me was very counterproductive, to say, well, I got along with all the other presidents, but I'm off on the wrong foot. But we have a, we're off on the wrong foot with Biden. Now, that was an unnecessary remark. I mean, actually, I think that the administration has been rather tame regarding Turkey, considering that it came in with a roar. Why is he still talking about buying more missiles and maybe some planes? I mean, what's going on? What, is this brinksmanship? What does he hope to achieve? Is it merely brinksmanship? No, I think we have to say it's not. He's taken a step down this path. If you had asked me, if you don't mind my backing up in time just a bit, um, I was saying several months ago uh, that the smartest thing Erdogan could do would be get rid of the S-400s. And I think there would have been a way to do it that would not have saved total face, would have saved, wouldn't have been the worst possible way to do it, but he would have lost some face. You mean done park it. them somewhere else in a third country, something like that? That kind of thing where it, with under, let's say, joint control of US and uh, Turkish troops so that Turkish troops could not get at them without US permission. Um, it would have been some loss of face for sure. But had he done it a while ago, um, he would have benefited tremendously, um, probably benefited because of gratitude great, more greatly from relations with the US than would have been the case had he never bought them in the first place. And by the time elections would roll around in 2023, um, what Turkish voter would care anymore that he had lost some face you know, 30 months oh, earlier. They wouldn't, absolutely wouldn't. Does Putin have some kind of hold over Turkey that we don't really understand, some leverage that, you know, makes it impossible for... You know, it could be, forward. there might be money issues, corruption issues. I mean, there, it could be the case. Either Erdogan has really made a decision that Turkey is moving towards neutralism uh, or wants to be neutral, meaning all the way, um, in effect being shut out of NATO. It's true, there's no mechanism for kicking, a, for expelling a country from NATO, but I guarantee you if he buys Russian planes, Turkey will not be participating in any NATO activities. Um, they will be functionally uh, expelled. Um, so I, you know, has he made that decision or is this just about his own personal self-esteem and his sense of honor and face? And I, I think, look, I, I still believe what he really wants to be is, is as autonomous as possible, but within the confines of um, what's acceptable to NATO on the edge thereof, but still to be within NATO. Um, but perhaps I mean, this I'm wrong. S-400 thing is still a huge obstacle uh, between US Absolutely and Turkey. Is. And it sounds like it's, I mean, 
you don't think it's going to change for as long as Erdogan is around. Is that the way the Biden administration is looking at Turkey currently? Are they I saying, think they are, but well, let's know, see what will happen in 2023 and till then just try and keep a lid on the thing, put a plaster over it and just hope that nothing get you know, it, nothing worse happens. So. Yeah, I th look, I think we have a total meeting of the minds on this. Uh, yes, I think the Biden administration, like much of the Western world's analysis uh, of Turkey and its current um, uh, drift away from the Western alliance, um, is t the hope that after 2023, Turkey will be under new and friendlier management. Um, so I do think that is the case. And um, now there's no guarantee that will happen. Uh, no. By fair or foul, Erdogan well may be reelected in 2023, um, but uh, including by fair, because some people do ignore that. Um, a lot of it has to do with who the opposition puts up against it. So if there's a friendlier administration in Turkey, the relationship can sort of, you know, heal. It, it may not be ever the same. Again, it probably won't be ever the we'll same. We'll take time, again. certainly we'll take time. Because, uh, because here's Erdogan the thing, is Alan, here's the thing. The one thing, the common denominator in the Turkish establishment, whether it's Islamist, nationalist, or, or secularist, is this paranoia about a Kurdish state. And God knows nothing's ignited that paranoia more than the alliance between the United States in Syria and the PYD, YPG, PKK, Turkey will say they're all the same. You know, how do you get around that? Because I don't believe that the, um, let's say you have a CHP-led government and a CHP candidate who becomes president, do you really think that that problem will go away? No, I do not. You put your finger on what is undoubtedly the biggest problem in U.S.-Turkish relations in Turkey. And uh, it is the reason, I believe, that the U.S. Uh, constantly comes out uh, on top of polls in Turkey as being the country that is most dangerous for Turkey. Um, I think uh, it, it's a very serious problem. And if you had a CHP-led government or CHP and EE-led government, that uh, um, it would remain a serious problem. Now, it might be eased somewhat by the fact that a CHP-led government very likely would with very possibly to listen to them uh, would want to get out of Syria. Um, and I think were Turkish troops not actually in Syria and were it demonstrated that the YPG is not attacking across the border, um, it would not solve all problems. It would remain a major problem, but I think it would take some of the air out of the current tension over that issue. But I don't underestimate what you're saying. I, I think as long as the US is supporting the YPG, um, it, it's going to 
provoke a lot of anti-US feeling in Turkey. Well, you know, you often hear the Kurds say they really want the US to step in and sort of broker some kind of grand bargain between Turkey's Kurds, Syria's Kurds, and, and, and Ankara. Um, I personally think that was never a realistic goal and that, you know, Turkey will need to, you know, address the problem within its own borders before it does any of that, precisely because of the paranoia and, you know, especially if you have, like, the United States or other Western countries involved in those discussions, it just, you know, makes it seem like an imposed solution. Look, I think if you had a, yes, I, I agree, you know, and the, the notion that uh, PYD and KNC, which, you know, can uh, negotiate some kind of solution, which leads to a uh, more acceptable Kurdish authority in Syria, more acceptable to Ankara, that is. I mean, you've written about this extensively, and I've learned so much from your writings on this and so many other issues. Um, I, it seems like a pipe dream right now. It, it, it would be well, such I really a... do think it is, but what I find hopeful is the sort of rapprochement, the dialogue between the Kurds and the CHP. It's obvious if there's a CHPEE government, it likely um, will give the HDP a lot of influence and uh, that does provide some hope uh, on the Kurdish issue, which by the way is an area where once upon a time Erdogan himself provided a lot of hope. So, uh, yes, it's, it's very, very sad how that all went uh, south. Yeah, but um, just to wrap it up, Alan, um, you know, <clears throat> certainly the S-400 seems like a big milestone, you know, where things went really, really badly wrong between the US and Turkey. But um, sitting in Turkey, as you well know, very often so much influence is attributed to Israel and uh, to the Jewish American community. And I think it's often hugely exaggerated, but you know, this is certainly the mindset, not just among Islamists, but among the ultra-nationalists, the Kemalists, there is that uh, sort of sense of this omnipotence of Israel and the Jewish community. Would you agree that perhaps one of the biggest mistakes Erdogan made early on was this rupture with Israel? That's a good question. I think you can make a good case that he was able to maintain good relations with the United States despite problematic relations with Israel for several years. What I think has become problematic uh, is that over the last, let's say since around 2014, um, Israel has been making clear that Turkey's relations with Hamas um, uh, are not at all innocent, and that Hamas has been planning, has used Turkey to plan operations in Israel and in the West Bank, including the attempted assassination or planned assassination of Mahmoud Abbas, uh, president of the Palestinian Authority. So. I, as a general principle, um, I, I think the biggest problem is the Turkish relationship with Hamas and the Turkey uh, 
has not made clear that uh, Hamas needs to follow the so-called quartet uh, principles to recognize Israel, renounce violence, and uh, accept previous Israeli-Palestinian agreements. And, and do, do we believe the opposition, if they were to come to power, the CHP would do that? I think if CHP came to power, the relationship with Hamas would, uh, would be over, as it would for with uh, most of the Islamic uh, Islamist groups that uh, Erdogan has cultivated. So any final thoughts, Alan? After the Biden summit, there was an effort to bring Turkey in to run the Kabul airport. That fell apart once that once, but that fell apart once the Taliban came in. But um, although now Turkey may yet uh, be involved in it, and I know it has some engineers there and it's talking to the Taliban. Um, but I, it seems to me since that time, the tenor of US rhetoric towards Turkey has softened, uh, despite what Erdogan said about not being off on the right foot with the Biden administration. Uh, as if there is a newfound um, or a revived appreciation, let's say a revived appreciation for Turkey's geopolitical importance. And um, I think what Ned Price said about, you know, having areas of agreement as well as disagreement and being able to cooperate despite the disagreement, I have a feeling that gives uh, Erdogan some hope. Now, if he buys another tranche of S-400s or worse, as they've again said to just today that they will consider, uh, buys the uh, SU-35s or SU-57s or any other uh, major Russian equipment, then all bets are off. And uh, I think there will be further sanctions. In the meantime, something else is happening. The US is you know, deepening its relations with with Greece, for example. Absolutely. You see the Gulf states, you know, forging closer ties with Israel, and that's creating a new dynamic in Turkey's neighborhood. I mean, you, you know, you can't uh, sort of say that it's okay for this relationship to limp along when all that other stuff is happening. I, I, I'm not saying it. I'm trying to say what I think how Erdogan sees it. Yeah, well, what, what I what I said was no, of course, and I mentioned a little earlier that I think the U.S. is hedging its bet by um, building up facilities around Turkey, and I did have Greece particularly in mind, but not only Greece. Um, but I, I, in a country that never reads the United States very well, uh, I think that Erdogan may once again make the error of thinking he can limp along. And so I'm not disagreeing with you, um, but I'm trying to get inside uh, his thinking. Um, and this is based on talking to some people who know him, but uh, you know, I, nobody, nobody really knows what goes on inside his brain, but um, you know, I, I think he'll, read that as something encouraging and maybe think he can because what does he want to do he wants 
He doesn't want to have bad relations with the United States if he can avoid it. He wants to stay in NATO for the reason I gave, but he also wants to have as much foreign policy autonomy as possible. He wants to get away with as much as he can. Yeah. And I'm afraid that he may, again, overplay his hand and think that it will give him the possibility to buy more Russian equipment. And, um, and, and I think, should he do that? I think that will be historic. Um, I think that will really be the beginning of the break between um, Turkey and the West, at least as long as Mr. Erdogan is there. So it was great to have you with us today, Alan. It was a fascinating and fun conversation. And um, I wish you good luck with the Cardinals. I, I <laughs> hope they're doing well still. Well, I'm looking forward to doing that podcast on the Cardinals, actually. Uh, oh, well, that won't be with me. Okay, <laughs> Alan, well, thank you so very much. It was great talking to you. Thank Take you care. so much for inviting me. Bye-bye. I loved it. Hello, I'm uh, Gilles Kepel, professor at uh, Sciences Po and Normal Sup in Paris and author of a number of uh, books and articles on the Middle East. The Middle East remains one of the most vital and fascinating regions in the world. It is rich in complexity and ideas, but for many in the West, it remains a puzzle with many missing pieces. Through my new podcast, Reading the Middle East on the award-winning media service and monitor, We will take a deep dive into the trends in the region with the authors and thought leaders who are shaping how we think about the Middle East. To begin my podcast, I speak with my friend and one of the most renowned novelists of the region, Egyptian writer Ala El Eswani, about his latest book, The Republic of False Truths, that chronicles the run-up to Egypt's 2011 revolution and its aftermath. Reading the Middle East will be a fantastic addition to Al Monitor's outstanding podcast lineup, including On the Middle East with Andrew Paraziliti and Amber Inzaman, and On Israel with Ben Kaspit. You can subscribe to all three Al Monitor podcasts on your favorite listening platforms. We look forward to your joining our conversation. brings us to the end of today's podcast. Thank you for tuning in and I hope to be with you again very soon.